You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. I'm probably the only one keeping count, but this marks the 100th podcast that I've recorded. When I first started doing this back in January of 2008, I really had no clue I'd still be recording so many years later. Now, today's podcast is really just a gift from my beautiful wife, Mary Jane. She's had to put up with me through all of the researching, writing, and recording of these long-forgotten, I have to admit, sometimes bizarre stories. When we first met back in 2004, she asked me to research the story that I'm about to tell further, but I told her it was both too new and too well-known to do. But every couple of years, Mary Jane would suggest the story once again, but it wasn't until a couple of months ago that I decided to take a fresh look at it. I'm not sure if I ever mentioned this before, but my wife Mary Jane is fluent in both French and Spanish. Now, French is her true love. She studied in Paris for five years, but as a lover of languages, Mary Jane opted to master Spanish a few years before we met, and she spent her summer south of the U.S. border immersing herself in Central American culture. It was while studying Spanish in Oaxaca, Mexico, that she stumbled across a local story in the newspaper, and it's that story that she's been bugging me about ever since. The setting for the story is a one-room house high up in the mountains of Rio Talea. That's in the southwestern portion of Mexico. It was in this dirt-floored cabin on March 5th of 2000 that a petite 40-year-old Zapotec native named Inez Ramirez Perez started to go into labor. Her husband, who had assisted with the birth of six of their seven children, was unavailable. Most sources claim that he was at the local cantina getting drunk, but the original story that my wife provided indicated he was out of town with two of his sons selling grain. No matter what the dad was doing, we can be certain that he wasn't there to assist with the delivery. This town was so remote that it lacked modern medical care. There were no doctors or nurses to contact for assistance. And the nearest medical clinic, well, that was 50 miles or 80 kilometers away over very mountainous terrain. Rio Talea did have one telephone, but it was just too far away to be of any benefit. Over the next 12 hours, the pain became more and more intense. Ines was in a panic. Her mind kept flashing back to her pregnancy of three years prior. That time, after her water broke, a midwife determined that she needed a cesarean section, but there's just no practical way to get her quickly to a hospital. Sadly, Ines lost the baby, and she was determined not to let that happen again. 
Inez started pacing the floor, you know, back and forth, back and forth. She just didn't know what to do. So she grabbed a bottle of alcohol, downed a few to help kill the pain, and she decided to take matters into her own hands. I couldn't stand the pain anymore. And if my baby was going to die, then I decided I would have to die too. But if he was going to grow up, I was going to see him grow up, and I was going to be with my child. I thought that God would save both of our lives. Then, shortly after midnight, Inez asked her eight-year-old son Benito to go and bring the new knife. He returned with a wooden-handled kitchen knife that had a six-inch or 15-centimeter long blade. You can probably guess where the story is headed, so I'll warn you in advance. The next few paragraphs are a bit cringeworthy, so you may, you know, may want to fast-forward through them. Holding the knife by the blade instead of by the handle, she applied pressure and attempted to make an incision into her belly to remove the baby. Once wasn't enough. I did it again. I was crying and screaming in terrible pain. Then I cut open my wound and I pulled the baby out by his feet. He cried straight away. She later estimated that the entire self-surgery took about an hour. The vertical incision was made just to the right of her navel and measured approximately six and three-quarter inches or 17 centimeters in length. Ouch! Yes, Inez Ramirez Perez had just performed a C-section on herself, and the baby appeared fine, but unfortunately she wasn't. A a lot of blood. It's going up like a hose. Inez proceeded to cut the umbilical cord with a pair of scissors, quickly wrapped the baby to keep it warm, put logs on the fire, and then passed out. Upon regaining consciousness, Inez told Benito to run and get help. Around 4 a.m., a village health assistant, whose name was Leon Cruz, he arrived to found Inez awake, alert, and caring for her newborn baby, whom she had named Orlando. Now, Cruz had basic first aid training, and he uses minimal skills to close the wounds with, and you're going to love this, he closed the wound with an ordinary needle and cotton thread. Next, Ines was placed into a rural mini-passenger bus, and she was driven along unpaved roads to a health clinic in the village of San Lorenzo Texmelucan. It was immediately clear to the attending physician that the facility was ill-equipped to help her. So the next thing you know, they place Inez and the baby into the back of a pickup truck. But her pain had become too intense and she needed to be transferred to an ambulance. Then she was taken to the state hospital at San Pedro, Huixtepec. Doctors in San Pedro were shocked by how well both Inez and the baby were doing. The wound showed no sign of infection and there was minimal bleeding. Her uterus had returned to its normal size, and there appeared to be no damage to her intestines. A surgery was performed to repair the crude incision, and while they were at it, the doctors opted to tie her tubes to prevent additional pregnancies. Triple antibiotics were prescribed, and it initially appeared that Inez was on the road to recovery. But things didn't go as smoothly as articles in the press made it sound. Three days after the surgery, Inez was showing signs of a blockage in her bowels. Attempt at relief without surgery were unsuccessful, so on the seventh post-operative day, a surgeon was called in. It was determined that an adhesion had caused her descending colon to become twisted, 
And, you know, a little snip, snip, and that problem was resolved. If you do a search on the internet, you can easily find images of the surgery and the suture. And I'll warn you in advance, they are not fun to look at. Inez was released from the hospital on the 10th post-operative day. She was placed aboard a bus, but its roundabout path meant a 12-hour ride to get home. So at one point along the journey, she just simply made the decision to disembark from the bus. Get this, she walked one and a half hours along rocky footpaths with Orlando strapped to her back to get home. I have to say, that's one tough woman. The news of Inez's self-cesarean made the local papers back in 2000, but it wasn't until the story was published in the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics four years later that it became known to the rest of the world. Numerous press photos were shot of Inez, Orlando, and that infamous knife. She was quoted as saying, I use it to cut fruit and vegetables now. Reflecting on that day, Dr. Honorio Galvin, who was the head of obstetrics at the San Pedro Hospital, he said, I couldn't believe it. There was no sepsis in the wound, no internal bleeding. She was back on her feet in a couple of days. Almost every story in print and on the internet claims that this is the only documented case of successful self-cesarean in history. Even Wikipedia states, quote, Ramirez is believed to be the only person known to have performed a successful cesarean section on herself. Of course, that got me thinking. Was this the only case? Couldn't be. Well, it turns out that it's not. Not even close. I was able to find information on a total of 24 DIY cesareans. I must admit that I cheated by reading a 2014 article titled Auto Cesarean Section, a review of 22 cases, and that appeared in the archives of women's mental health. So that added 21 more cases to the one that my wife had already brought to my attention. The authors of this article, that's Zabo and Brockington, they classify self-cesareans into three broad categories. First are mothers who wish to abort the child, followed by women who are clearly mentally ill, and finally those who perform a cesarean on themselves as an act of desperation. Clearly, Inez Ramirez Perez fell into that last category. Now, the authors did add, quote, We think the third group would be more numerous if there were more publications from Africa and South Asia, where many women give birth without the aid of modern obstetrics. To avoid boring you to death by going through each of the individual stories, I'll just present you with a short summary of a few of the most interesting. The earliest documented case occurred back in 1769 on a plantation in Jamaica. A black slave who had previously borne three children naturally became desperate and operated upon herself. Unfortunately, she accidentally cut the baby's right thigh and it died six days later. The mother did survive and she became pregnant once again. She attempted to do the same self-surgery, but others intervened and stopped her from doing so. This time, her baby was delivered properly and it did survive. In 1843, that's 14 days after a couple was married, the husband was transferred to a different locality. His 28-year-old wife became pregnant, but she was convinced that this was an impossibility because she believed his sperm to be immature. 
Instead, she said her belly contained a snake. The baby was born in the usual way, but the mother would not accept it as her own. Two days later, she took a knife, cut open her abdomen, and attempted to remove her snake-like intestines. She did recover from both the self-surgery and the mental illness. On August 16, 1981, police officers in Ithaca, New York, noticed a 29-year-old woman named Deborah Stagg walking down the street in blood-stained pants with a baby carrier strapped around her neck. Inside the carrier was a naked 2-pound or 0.9-kilogram newly born baby girl. It was determined she had performed a C-section on herself using a pocket knife and then she stitched her wound closed. It was only a few minutes later that the officers discovered her, which most likely prevented her from bleeding to death. Finally, the most recent case I could locate was that of a 28-year-old woman from the Philippines. She did the same exact thing. You know, she used an ordinary kitchen knife, needle, and thread to close herself up. Unfortunately, in this case, the child did not survive and the mother was brought up on an abortion charge. Now, personally, I can't imagine ever cutting myself on purpose. Just the thought of doing so makes me cringe, you know. Ouch. No way. Useless, useful, like that for you to decide. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Has any man ever said to you, darling, I love you forever? He says forever, but in your secret heart you know he means forever as long as you keep yourself attractive. So by all means, help your hands keep their smooth loveliness. Use Heinz Honey and Almond Cream day in and day out. Every single ingredient in Heinz Lotion is good for rough or tender skin, whether it's on your face, your hands, or your body. This fine, fragrant cream helps prevent chapping and roughness and that awful weathered dryness that makes your skin look so drawn and old. Smooth Heinz Lotion all over your red hands and wrists. Notice how even one application makes your chapped hands feel softer, look more appealing. Use Heinz as a powder base, too. See how evenly it holds the powder, no caking at all. And as a body rub, Heinz is a honey. It's so extra creamy, extra softening, that every drop brings real soothing comfort to tender skin. Heinz Honey and Almond Cream contains two vitamins, two A and D. You can count on Heinz, H-I-N-D-S, for softer, smoother, lovelier skin on hands, face, and body. That commercial for Heinz Honey and Almond Cream is from the February 28, 1940 episode of Burns and Allen. It's from one of the shows where Gracie Allen runs for president, which I had discussed in the last podcast. Heinz Honey and Almond Cream traces its origins back to a drugstore that Aurelia Stone Heinz purchased back in 1870 in Portland, Maine. It was there in 1873 that he first formulated the hand cream. 
The odd thing is that Heinz Honey and Almond Cream never contained any honey, and it never contained any almond extract. Within a few years, he started marketing the product outside of Portland as a patent medicine. He claimed it could treat sunburn, poison ivy, acne, eczema, and a number of other skin disorders. It was in 1906 when the switch was made to sell it strictly as a skin cream. The product was acquired by Len and Fink in 1907, and additional products were added to the line. Those include Heinz Cold Cream, Heinz Disappearing Cream, Heinz Talcum Powder, and Heinz Soap. Sales kept climbing until the Great Depression hit. Vitamin D was added in 1937, and that was followed by vitamin A in 1938. Now, if you want to get your hands on some of this great Heinz Honey and Almond Cream, forget it. It was discontinued sometime during the 1960s. So here's a question for you. Back in 1964, chemist Norman Stingley developed a revolutionary new material called Zectron. Can you name the toy that was developed from his invention? I'll let you think about that for a few minutes and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. In other news, just in case I haven't grossed you out enough yet, here are a few more stories on self-surgery. It was reported on April 30th of 1936 that a 60-year-old Newtownville, New Jersey farmer named William Jugis had been found in a state of collapse by Mortimer Chamberlain, who was a nearby storekeeper. It seemed that about one week prior, Jugis had a severe sore throat and could barely swallow. Now, while most people would seek the help of a doctor, Jugis decided to treat himself. He sharpened a kitchen knife and then proceeded to make a 3-inch or 7.6-centimeter long incision in his throat, not too far from his Adam's apple. Jugis immediately felt better and he sewed the slit back up with black thread. Of course, he was later found by his neighbor in a near state of unconsciousness. He ended up being treated by real doctors in an Atlantic City hospital and he was expected to make a complete recovery. On July 30th of 1949, Dr. George C. Balderson decided to operate on himself to see the true effects of local anesthesia. So without any assistance, the good doctor removed his appendix. The operation really was a success, and by the next day, he was back in business. He supposedly performed three tonsillectomies, treated a boy with a back injury, and he was awoken at 2 a.m. to make a house call. Wow. And for our last tidbit for today, it is reported on January 21st of 1952 that 56-year-old Gretna, Louisiana resident Sidney Landry had been suffering from terrible stomach pains and he, quote, decided to do something about them. Landry took a penknife and made an incision into his abdomen and he cut out about one foot or 30 centimeters of his colon. This is going to sound really gross. He then turned on the kitchen faucet and proceeded to wash his intestines before placing them back in his body. Can you believe that? But he was unable, unlike the other people, he was unable to sew up his incision, so he finally now decided to seek medical help. He was taken to the charity hospital in New Orleans, and the paper reported he had been given a 50-50 chance of survival. So now that you've had a few minutes to think about it, did you know which toy was made from Zectron? Well, the answer was the Whammo Super Ball, which was a toy that every child wanted when I was a kid in the late 60s and early 70s. 
Norman Stingley was a chemist for the Bettis Rubber Company when he invented the synthetic rubber polybutadiene, but unfortunately he struggled to find a use for it. His employer passed on the rubber because it wasn't very durable. Enter Whammo. Whammo had hit previous home runs with their frisbees and hula hoops, and they opted to give the new rubber a shot. U.S. patent number 3,241,834 was issued on August 25th of 1965 for a, quote, highly resilient polybutadine ball. Not a very catchy name, so they renamed the material Zectron. It took nearly two years of research to create a more durable ball, but once they did, the sales just went through the roof. They skyrocketed. At its peak, Whammo was producing 170,000 Super Balls each day. As a little side note, the name Super Bowl, as in football, comes because Super Balls were so popular at the time of its conception. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I apologize for taking so long to record this, but all I can say is I was sick. Right before Christmas, as I was getting ready to record, I got a nasty cold, and then my cough just got worse and worse and worse. When I was getting ready to record again, my wife, who you heard uh, do some of the quotes earlier in the podcast, she got ill. Then she finally got better, and guess who got sick again? Uh, But I think I'm back to normal, and hopefully I'm back on schedule to record future podcasts. One thing that did happen in my absence from recording is that I was contacted by the producers of the Travel Channel show Mysteries at the Museum. They're interested in doing stories on some of the things that I have recorded. Now, I'm not going to get any credit for this. I don't get any money. I'm not even going to appear on the show. But they have already filmed the Salem Trade School. That was of the fictitious football team uh, from the 1920s. And my understanding is they're doing the one on the guy who was buried by an avalanche. And, of course, he used his red ticket stub to be saved. They did ask me about another story also, but I don't know if that's going anywhere. Back in the year 2000, there was a competing channel who had a TV show that stole story after story after story from me. I'm not kidding. They even copied word for word some of them. I never said anything. and I just let it, you know, what are you going to do? You put it out on the internet, someone's going to take it. At least in this case, they contacted me. It was very nice of them. And it's flattering that they think my research is worth doing something for. So I wish them luck. Anyway, I thank you for listening. And I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.